Welcome to a Kessler Foundation Stroke Research Lecture Podcast. This podcast features Dr. Brian Keene presenting visual perceptual disturbances as a window into the underlying pathophysiology of schizophrenia. Dr. Keene is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Rutgers, Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, with affiliations at University Behavioral Healthcare and Center for Cognitive Science. This podcast was recorded on Monday, October 18th, 2017 at the Kessler Foundation Conference Center, 120 Eagle Rock Ave, East Hanover, New Jersey, and was edited and produced by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation. Let's listen in. Measured and evaluated as an indicator of normal biologic processes, pathogenic processes, or pharmacologic responses to a therapeutic intervention. So that's just a fancy way of saying a biomarker is something that we can objectively observe that identifies when the illness is present, how it's progressing, and whether it's responding to treatment. So the main claim of this presentation is that visual disturbances may provide a sort of biomarker for schizophrenia. So why look at visual disturbances? When you think of schizophrenia, you might think of many other things, like auditory hallucinations or delusions or disorganized thinking. Why is it that we're focused specifically on visual disturbances? Well, one good reason is that visual disturbances actually partly define the illness. So um, they contribute or can contribute to a DSM diagnosis. So this is a uh, snippet from a, um, uh, from a skit. And we ask uh, all subjects whether they have uh, visual hallucinations, and specifically whether they have, they have visions that other people can't see. Um, and we, we are sure to um, distinguish these from illusions or misperce- misperceptions of real external stimuli. And so a common misperception is that visual hallucinations are actually rare in schizophrenia. That is not true. So 25 to 30% of people with schizophrenia have had a visual hallucination at some point in their life, according to an extensive review conducted in 2014 or published in 2014 by Waters et al. Another reason to look at vision is that it's the most studied sense modality. So if you uh, look at all the PubMed entries uh, using these different key terms on the x-axis, visual, auditorial, factory, haptic, tactile, you can see that there are many more, there's much more literature on vision than there is on any other sense of these sense modalities. So this implies that the computational neural mechanism should be well characterized, and the psychometric methods should be well developed. At the same time, visual perception in schizophrenia is understudied. So if you uh, conjoin the term schizophrenia to the terms on the x-axis, you can see that there's a much larger amount of literature on attention, memory, and language than whether it's on vision, despite the obvious relevance of vision to schizophrenia. So in this presentation, I'll be making three claims. One is that visual assessments can identify when a person has schizophrenia as compared to some other related disorder. Two is it can reveal the current stage or state of the illness that a person is in. And three is it can implicate specific brain regions or networks. So I'll be relying upon four different behavioral paradigms. The first is contour integration, which I'll describe. Second is visual shape completion, which I'll also be going into, and depth inversion illusions. Um, and finally, self-reported visual disturbances. And only if we have time to cover that will I discuss that uh, fourth paradigm. So let's start with contour integration. So in a contour integration task, uh, subjects will see an array of these oriented elements. These are called gabores. A subset of the elements will form a shape, a circular shape, and subjects will have to say um, where that shape appears. So which quadrant contains the circles? So they'll see this array for one second, after which they'll see these four numbers appearing in the quadrants, and they'll have to say the number that corresponds to the the target's shape. So task difficulty um, on the paradigm that I was describing depended on the number of noise elements that, that co- were co-presented along with the target. So when you just have a few noise elements, then it becomes very easy to see that target. But when you have a lot of noise, then it becomes quite difficult to see that there's a circle there, at least under speeded viewing conditions. So we also measured threshold, and threshold was uh, measured using um, an adaptive Bayesian staircase method called uh, Quest, developed by Watson and Pelley in the early 80s. 
and it determined the number of noise patches that needed to be co-presented along with the target in order to generate 75% um, accuracy. I should say that the noise uh, was presented not just in, along with the target quadrant, but also in all four quadrants. Um, for reasons I'm not going to go too much into, we also vary the spatial frequency of the stimulus by scaling the entire size of the display. Um, and so uh, for four cycles per degree, it would be a, a large uh, uh, kind of uh, screen uh, with large gabors. And then for 12 cycles per degree, we scale it down to be very small. And uh, we scaled in this way uh, because this is what others have done. Uh, there's an old paper by Hessen Dakin in Nature in 1997 uh, showing that uh, for healthy people, when you scale a stimulus between 3 and 24 cycles per degree, you get relatively constant contour integration performance. Um, yeah. We also uh, had uh, subjects perform catch trials. Catch trials are trials that involve a circular target all by itself without any course, um, uh, without any noise elements that were co-presented. And we wanted to see how contour integration changes as, as, a, as a person goes from the first episode of psychosis to the chronic stages of the illness. And to do this, we had um, three subject groups. We had 25 healthy controls, 22 first episode patients, or FEs, as I'll call them sometimes, and then 24 chronic schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder patients. And uh, we really tried hard to match these groups on a number of variables. So the first episode uh, and control groups were matched with age, gender, and uh, parental education. And then the first episode and the chronic uh, schizophrenia group groups were matched on um, sex um, ratio, parental education, IQ, current level of functioning, pre-morbid functioning, age of onset, uh, pan-symptom scores using a three-factor uh, structure, <clears throat> and a medication type and levels using chlorpromazine equivalent standards. Uh, so yeah, they were, they were well matched. So here I'm showing you data from the catch trials. So proportion correct is on the y-axis. Um, so guessing is 0.25, that's at the bottom. Um, 1.0 means they're doing perfect. And I'm showing you the low spatial frequency uh, uh, condition first. And so this is where it was a large display where subjects um, were kind of sitting closer to the screen. Uh, and you can see that all, all, uh, each subject group was close to ceiling. For the high spatial frequency condition, uh, several subjects, again, were close to ceiling. Uh, there was a small 3% difference between the uh, schizophrenia group and the healthy control group, but uh, that was caused by a couple stragglers, and if you took those subjects out, uh, all the other data I'll be showing you remain the same. So uh, here are the uh, regular trials, the non-catch trials, and so threshold is shown on the y-axis. Um, and so higher threshold means you can tolerate more noise while achieving 75% accuracy, so you're doing better on the task. Uh, and you can see that uh, the only difference between three groups was between the chronic and the control group. And this is for, uh, once again, four cycles per degree. Then it gets more interesting at the 12 cycles per degree condition where you get these relatively large group effects. So uh, a very large gaping effect between the chronic uh, patient group and the control group. And, um, and the first episode group is intermediate between these two. Um, so uh, as you go from lower to higher spatial frequency, these contra-integration deficits, at least using this sort of paradigm, become more apparent. So to look at this in another way, we just did a good old-fashioned correlation and just looked at illness duration on the x-axis and threshold on the y-axis. And you can see that as they uh, have experienced the illness for a longer and longer period of time, they, um, they perform worse and worse on this high spatial frequency task. So maybe you're scratching your head and say, well, maybe it's age, right? Maybe just when you get older, you get worse at these sorts of tasks. Maybe it's not the illness duration per se. Uh, we think that this is unlikely. Um, and the main reason is because um, for controls, age had no effect on performance. So the controls had a similar mean and standard deviation as patients, but yet age had no relationship to threshold for the high spatial frequency condition. Um, so we wanted to kind of tease apart the effects of age and illness duration in the multiple regression model, but that was impossible because of the significant multicollinearity between age and illness duration. The two were correlated at a level of 0.9. So this is an indirect way of, of indicating that um, it's illness duration, not age per se, that is um, altering performance. Thank you.
So what's causing these effects? Why is it that patients have more trouble at the high spiritual frequency version of this task for these kind of small, scaled-down stimuli? Well, could it be visual acuity? Uh, we do not think that this is a good explanation. Uh, all subjects had 2032 vision or better, and when subjects were matched precisely on visual acuity using a logarithmic visual acuity chart, um, the uh, effects remained, um, uh, um, and they were still large in, uh, in magnitude. Another possibility is contrast sensitivity, contrast sensitivity. So patients are known to have contrast sensitivity impairments. However, this can't have uh, this can't be a good explanation because contrast sensitivity impairments tend to improve as you go from low to high spatial frequency. They don't tend to get worse. Um, Another reason has to do with perhaps uh, cells and the earliest visual centers that are responding and picking up on these properties, these fine-grained properties of the uh, stimuli. So this is a, a graph uh, that was made by Freeman Simoncelli, Nature Neuroscience, in 2011. Uh, the y-axis is the receptive field size. The receptive field is kind of a window of space that the cell will respond to when you place stimulus, a stimuli within that window. Um, and then the uh, x-axis is the receptive field center, or the eccentricity, how far from fixation. And these uh, data are aggregated over 10 uh, studies that looked at single-cell responses within monkey in these uh, visual areas, V1, V2, and V4. So as you can see, um, the cells that are going to be most responsible for picking up on these Gabor elements for the high spatial frequency task are going to be cells that have very small receptive fields. And so this at least provides some indirect evidence that, it's, uh, that these um, deficits are happening at the level of V1. But of course, this needs to be further investigated. And in fact, we are investigating it with an fMRI uh, study right now, which is ongoing. Uh, contour integration, uh, the paradigm has been around since the early 1990s. Um, and so in visual neuroscience, it's been heavily investigated using a number of me methodologies, including single cell and fMRI. And um, basically, the, uh, the studies so far have indicated that the most important centers for this process are V1, V2, V4, lateral occipital complex. Um, so these are uh, important centers to look more closely at when understanding why these deficits arise. So to summarize uh, the contour integration data, the uh, deficits that we found uh, arise by the first psychotic episode. Uh, these deficits worsen with illness duration. Uh, the most apparent for high spatial frequency stimuli, which are scaled down in size. Um, and the effect sizes could be quite large with Cohen's Ds of 1.7. And they cannot be explained by poor attention uh, or motivation because all subjects were doing relatively normally on the catch trials. And they also did um, within the normal range for the low spatial frequency variant of the same task. Uh, it also can't be explained by advanced age because if age had no effect for controls on the task. Uh, furthermore, the total duration of the task was quite brief. The total number of trials in the experiment was 210. Uh, and so it was uh, 105 uh, trials for the high spatial frequency version, and that took less than eight minutes to conduct. So within eight minutes, you can get some idea of where a person is in their illness and whether they have a deficit. So this implicates uh, cells with small receptive fields in V1, though, of course, this is just a tentative conjecture. Okay, so far, so good. So now we're going to go to visual shape completion, which is a related process um, that uh, basically uh, forms contours and closed uh, surfaces on the basis of the geometric rela relations of these edge elements. Sometimes they're called inducers. And so because these inducers are oriented and aligned in the right kind of way, your brain automatically fills in these contours, and these contours uh, enclose a completed shape. So we take it for granted, but this is really a stunning um, uh, process that your brain uh, does, and it does it within 200 milliseconds, um, and it allows you to rapidly extract the number, shape, and persistence of objects that you see in a cluttered visual environment. So prior studies uh, using um, oscillations of VEPs and electrophysiology and also um, 
uh, behavioral studies uh, done by uh, myself and others at Rutgers have shown that people with schizophrenia are impaired at visual shape completion. The paradigms uh, differ somewhat, but uh, uh, typically uh, these, these deficits are uh, larger in magnitude. So the question that I'm going to be addressing in the study I'll be describing is, are these deficits in visual shape completion, are they specific to schizophrenia? And why uh, are they caused, or why do they occur? So uh, in this particular study, we had 26 bipolar patients, 20, 23 uh, schizophrenia patients, and 23 healthy controls. And we matched the groups on age, sex, and parental education. And the subjects discriminated four sectored circles, or Pacman, to use the informal term. This paradigm has been around since the uh, mid-1990s. It was developed by uh, Daria Ringach and Bob Shapley at NYU. Um, and since that point, it's been uh, used extensively in the vision literature. Uh, and there were two conditions. One was the illusory condition, and one was the fragmented, which I'll now describe. So for the illusory condition, you have these four Pac-Men. And what we did is we rotated them one of two ways to create one of two response alternatives. So if you rotate them this way, then you get a fat shape. And if you rotate them the other way, you get a thin shape. So on each trial, they would see one of these two uh, stimulus types. And they would have to say which of the two they saw. In the fragmented condition, it was very similar, except the Pac-Men were rotated, or they were all pointing downwards to prevent the formation of illusory contours and shapes. Uh, however, uh, just as before, they were rotated left or right, so the subjects would see one of these two seamless types, and they would have to say which one they saw. So um, task difficulty depended on the magnitude of the Pac-Man rotation. So if you rotate the Pac-Man just a little bit, it becomes really hard to figure out whether a shape is fat or thin. But if you rotate them more, then the difference between the two shapes becomes more obvious or more clear. And so we measured threshold um, with a uh, Bayesian adaptive staircase called the Psi method, which I'll discuss here in a moment. And threshold corresponded to how much rotational magnitude you needed in order to uh, uh, achieve 80% accuracy. So specifically, we use some, some, something called the Psi method or the Psi function. So Psi corresponds to proportion correct. Gamma corresponds to um, the guess rate. Uh, lambda is the upper asymptote. Alpha and beta are the threshold and slope, respectively. And X is the difficulty level or the rotational magnitude. And so sometimes this is called a log Weibull or a Gumbel function. And so we use this to model the uh, sigmoidal response to, uh, to the stimulus. So to make this more concrete, I'm showing proportion correct on the y-axis, ranging from 0.5 to 1.0, which is perfect. And uh, Pac-Man rotational magnitude is shown in log units on the x-axis. And I'm showing you two hypothetical psychometric curves where a patient would be doing worse than a control. And so this patient would have a threshold accuracy of 0.6, or sorry, a threshold, um, threshold value of 0.6, which corresponds to a rotation plus or minus four degrees. And then this patient would have a threshold of 0.9 log units, which corresponds to a rotation plus or minus 8 degrees. So because the control needs less rotation to achieve the same amount of accuracy, the, the, um, uh, the control can be said to be doing better on this task. So here are the data. Threshold is shown on the uh, y-axis. So higher threshold means you're doing worse at the task. And uh, we have the three subject groups, control, bipolar, and schizophrenia in red. And um, although it looks like there could be a difference here, uh, there's nothing that's significant uh, on the fragmented uh, task. But it gets more interesting when you look at the illusory task. So um, controls are, have a pretty low threshold, and the bipolar patients are intermediate, and the, the chronic schizophrenia patients have uh, quite a bit of difficulty with this task. Um, and when you're actually testing them, when they talk to you, they're like, they'll tell you they don't really like this task. Um, so to look at these results another way, we, completed, we um, uh, calculated a completion index, which is very simple. We just took, uh, for each subject, the fragmented threshold, and from that, we subtracted out the illusory threshold. So there's a different score for each subject, and we compared those different scores across groups, or between groups. So uh, here's the threshold difference plotted on the y-axis. So the higher up you're doing, the better you're doing in the illusory relative to the fragmented. So better completion scores brings you up into positive territory. 
And you can see, as you would expect from the other graph, that the uh, patients had quite a bit of trouble in the illusory relative to the fragmented. And each of these effects was significant, with the exception of the bipolar control comparison, which was marginal. So using uh, a similar sort of paradigm and setup, uh, we asked the question, when do completion deficits emerge uh, in the illness, and how do they change with illness chronicity? So we had three subject groups, 18 first episode patients, 37 chronic schizophrenia, schizoaffective patients, and then 50 healthy controls. Um, and in this case, what we did is we re removed uh, schizophrenia patients uh, and first episode patients who performed poorly on the fragmented condition uh, so that they all had to perform within 1.5 standard deviations of the control mean on the fragmented condition. And so the reason we did this is because others in the, in the literature have said that people with schizophrenia have broad orientation tuning. And so we wanted to make sure that broad orientation tuning could not possibly explain a result. So all patients had normal fragmented performance and normal ability to discriminate the left-right stimuli. Uh, subject groups were matched on gender and parental education. Uh, and the experimental conditions were the same as before. So we had the traditional kind of Pac-Man stimuli that I just showed you. But we also had wire stimuli, which I won't get into, but it has a different spatial frequency composition doing a Fourier uh, analysis. But uh, I'm actually going to collapse data across these two conditions because the magnitude of the patient's deficits did not depend on whether it was um, the traditional or the wire stimulus. So here are the data collapsed across the wire and tra traditional stimuli. Uh, not surprisingly, all groups were within range on the fragmented back, um, which was good. Uh, and then for the illusory task, um, the two patient groups were uh, similar to one another, but different from the control. So as before, we completed a uh, completion index uh, and for each subject, subtracted out the illusory threshold from the fragmented threshold and compared those different scores between groups. And you can see that uh, there's a nice healthy difference between the controls and the two patient groups, but the two patient groups were actually almost identical. So to look at this another way, we uh, collapsed data across the patient groups since the patient groups were performing the same way. Uh, and this is just a scatter plot, and then each, each dot corresponds to a given value for the illusory threshold average and the fragmented threshold average. And the bubbles correspond to the bootstrap standard error estimates uh, that was given by the side method that I was describing. Um, and so if, you have, if you're doing really good or really well on the illusory but poorly on the fragmented, then you should be up here, and if you do really poorly on the illustration, really well on the fragment, you could down here. So basically, using the completion index that I was describing, if you have poor completion, you should be down here, and good completion, you should be up here. You can see quite clear, clearly that there's a clustering based on group membership, whereas most, most of the uh, controls are on the upper left, and most of the patients are on the bottom right. And this uh, Cohen's D value is pointing up. So next I'm going to ask, well, are these deficits more pronounced in certain types of patients? And the answer to this question is yes. Um, so one symptom that I'm really fascinated by and that really keeps on uh, becoming relevant in our studies is that of disorganization or thought disorder. Uh, so for those of you who might not know what disorganization is, I just want to show a brief clip, um, 30 seconds or so of a person who has pretty extreme thought disorder. So he's going to speak, and you will have little idea what he's talking about. I know how to angle myself for the rest of the men, you see. That's why I did that too. That's why I did that to that for, you know. And uh, I wanted to fix it on the nose, a praying mantis, and a fire in the grass, you know, that uh, I think it's very important that we act badly, but I think it's very important that we act uh, in reality of what makes the world your life of the world sliding off the curve into your death. Oh. Right, so no, none of us has any idea what he was talking about, but he seemed like, if, you, if this were muted and you just saw him talking, he's like, oh yeah, it must be talking about something meaningful. Um, so this person, uh, we would predict, would actually have very uh, significant perceptual abnormalities as well as his thought disorder. Uh, and this is not just conjecture. There are previous completion studies uh, done with EG by Kevin Spencer and colleagues, and also by our team, 
showing that there's a relationship with visual completion such that people who are more disorganized are also um, more prone to have trouble with the illusory condition, but little trouble with the fragmented condition. <clears throat> Um, so sure enough, this is a new uh, data set which kind of uh, further supports that, uh, that view. So th the threshold difference is shown on the y-axis. So the higher up you are, the better you're doing at visual shape completion. And then the, the uh, disorganized symptoms is shown on the x-axis. And you can see that there's a, a reasonably good correlation there between the two. Uh, and we also found another correlation which um, had to do with premorbid functioning, which is how well they function in the early adolescent phases of the illness. Um, and so again, there was a correlation such that the, the worse their functioning was during early adolescence, the worse they did in the illusory relative to the fragmented condition. That is the worst shape completion that they had. So what are the neural mechanisms? Well, um, again, this sort, of, um, this sort of stimulus has been explored very extensively in the visual neuroscience literature using fMRI, TMS, and single cell neurophysiology. And they keep converging on the same regions, V1, V2, lateral occipital complex, and V4. And there's a kind of a, a, a communication back and forth between these uh, visual centers uh, where uh, you have long-range horizontal connections between, um, excitatory connections between uh, pyramidal cells in V1, V2, which kind of connect uh, elements across space, and then they send it up to LLC and V4, which in turn reinforces those connections. So there's a nice paper that just came out this year by Charlie Gilbert's group, which shows that these sorts of uh, connections are in fact causal, and they, they, they use a uh, grander causality analysis. Um, at the same time, I think that, uh, that the reason that patients are performing poorly on this task might have to do with something with a later processing center. And um, there's a paper by John Fox and colleagues uh, in cerebral cortex in 2005. And they did uh, visual vote potentials and LoRa source localization. Uh, and the task was very simple. They had to say on each trial whether they saw one of these squares or one of these fragmented stimuli. And um, the patients showed uh, increased activity uh, in right inferior frontal cortex between 240 and 400 milliseconds post-stimulus onset. So that's pretty late because the illusory contours are formed within 150 milliseconds, but they're showing late uh, frontal lobe activity in patients, but no such increased activity in controls. So I think that this indicates that there very well could be uh, some high-level component to this uh, abnormality that we're seeing in our psychophysical data. Uh, there are also fMRI, EEG, and psychophysical studies which indicate that a conceptual strategy and, and, um, and high-level regions and frontal cortex are indeed uh, relevant for understanding uh, your ability to at least categorize these visually completed shapes. So um, to summarize the uh, completion um, data, uh, visual shape completion is worse in schizophrenia as compared to bipolar disorders. Uh, these deficits arise by the first psychotic episode, but they remain stable thereafter, which is in stark contrast to the contour integration data I presented. Um, these deficits are more severe for those with uh, cognitive disorganization and poor premorbid functioning, especially during the early adolescent phase of, um, uh, of life. <clears throat> the effect sizes are uh, reasonably large, with cognitive values of 0.8 or higher. Uh, and these uh, deficits cannot be attributed to poor attention and motivation because all patients were performing normally on the fragmented task and the uh, visual shape completion was measured as a difference between two conditions for each subject. And also cannot be blamed on poor orientation tuning because again, all of our subjects were performing normally on that task, the left-right task. And so the implicated neural regions are V1 and V2 LOC and uh, frontal regions, either orbital frontal cortex or perhaps right inferior frontal cortex. So the third paradigm I'm going to discuss is called the depth inversion illusion. Um, sometimes it's called binocular depth inversion illusion. Um, and uh, so what you're seeing here is a mask that's convex on one side and concave on the other side. And it's painted so that the concave side looks as if it's convex. So I'm actually going to pass around. Actually, have the object here if you want to look at it. You already see yeah, it. Um, just try to be delicate with it since it belongs to my collaborator, Thomas Papa Thomas, who made it by hand. Um, but it's a pretty stunning illusion. It's very salient. 
Um, and uh, what I'm going to show you is that psychosis is relevant to whether you get the illusion. Um, let's go into the data. Oops. Sorry. Um, so uh, back in the late 1980s, some people in Germany, uh, most notably Emmerich et al., uh, or just Emmerich in this paper, uh, uh, documented that people with schizophrenia are less prone to these sorts of illusions. And since that point, uh, there have been numerous other studies and uh, different hypotheses that have been kind of fluted for why this uh, is happening. Um, so in our studies that I'm going to be discussing, uh, we asked, well, why are these depth inversion illusions less common in schizophrenia, both neurally and also in terms of information processing? And also, do these reductions in, in the illusion vary with the state of the illness? Uh, and are these reductions specific to schizophrenia, or do they also occur in other related psychotic disorders? Or uh, other related disorders, I should say. So uh, two studies I'll be discussing. In the first study, we had 25 healthy controls, 30 chronic schizophrenia patients, and then um, uh, in our patient group, we uh, selectively sampled them so that 10 of the patients would be outpatients, 10 would be uh, participating in the extended partial hospital program, and 10 would be participating in the acute partial hospital program. And so the difference between these two partial hospital programs, the both day programs, is that the acute um, was for patients who uh, recently had an acute psychotic episode or who recently exited uh, an inpatient uh, unit. And so therefore they had higher levels of symptoms and lower levels of functioning. Um, and then the outpatients uh, had, been out, had, had not had a um, psychotic episode within two years, and they were seeing a psychiatrist either on a biweekly basis or even on a monthly basis, so they were the most highly functioning. And so we sampled in this way in order to increase the heterogeneity of our sample in order, and um, make it, this made it more likely that we would find significant correlations um, between uh, behavior and uh, clinical features. Um, we. Uh, match the groups on eight different variables, including um, IQ, uh, parental and uh, self-education, uh, handedness, uh, ethnicity, uh, things like that. So uh, these groups were, once again, uh, uh, pretty well matched. Um, here are the stimuli that we used. These were actual physical objects that, was, that were created by uh, our collaborator, Thomas Papa Thomas. Uh, and so we had, um, these were all concave stimuli. So you see these fixation, these green fixation points. So these are actually further from you than the points immediately to the left or right. Um, so this is further away than this point or this point. Uh, and same thing here, these are all concave stimuli. So this is in the nose, the nose is actually going inward. So this is further away from you than the cheeks. Same thing here. And so we had scenes and faces, and for each of those objects, they were either painted with misleading texture to create a more salient illusion, or the texture was removed and it had a uniform surface to make the illusion less salient. Um, and we additionally had a catch stimulus, so this was just a con, a ordinarily con, uh, ordinary convex mask, and this was to ensure that subjects were not playing with us and just giving us a consistent concave response and that they had normal vision. So uh, the procedure was as follows. Each of those five objects were viewed uh, twice for two minutes apiece. So the first time that they saw those five objects, they saw it under conditions of motion parallax. So they had uh, an eye patch over their non-dominant eye, and they used only their dominant eye, and they swayed back and forth between two planks of wood, which had a distance between them that was larger than their interpupillary distance. Uh, to ensure that they would get significantly different views of the same object over time as they were swaying back and forth. Um, so this provides a sense of motion parallax. And the other depth cue was obtained in the second half of the experiment, where they had both eyes open, but they were stationary, and they were sitting in a chin rest. And so they had to uh, make judgments about the object uh, just on the basis of stereopsis. Um, so for each of these viewing conditions, uh, for each of these viewings, uh, subjects judged whether an object appeared convex or concave every 12 seconds. So it was um, two minutes, so every 12 seconds, a total of 10 times, they would stare at that green dot in the middle of the object, they would say, popping out or caving in, popping out or caving in. They would do this, and we would um, uh, quantify performance as the uh, proportion of time that subjects reported seeing the true shape, so the vertical response. So here are the data for the motion parallax um, condition. 
So proportionally vertical response is on the y-axis. So the higher up you are, the less illusion you get. Uh, so let's start with the catch stimuli first. So you can see that, that subjects were 100% accurate in getting the catch correct. So they all could see that the convex mask was in fact, was in fact convex. Um, now let's look at the scenes. So you had texture and no texture. So the um, controls are in blue, the patients are in green. You can see that the patients are more accurate than the controls in each of these two conditions. In fact, in all four of these conditions, the patients, uh, the bars for the patients are higher than that of the controls. Um, something else to notice here is that the no texture uh, bars were higher than the texture, not just for the scenes, but also for the faces. And this makes sense. If you remove those misleading texture cues, the illusion should be stronger. But what's interesting is that patients had a normal response to the illusion salience reduction. That is, when you make the illusion less salient, both patients and controls respond, respond normally and give more concave responses. Now I'm showing you the data from the stereopsis condition. Um, and proportion vertical responses on the y-axis. Again, higher up you go, less illusion. Um, and you get uh, group differences for every condition. Um, also, uh, for uh, the CATCH trials, uh, all subjects could get it normally. It was not very easy for them to see that it was convex. Uh, now, there's some cases where it looks like they're about even, but none of these interactions reach significance. Not even close, actually. Um, so one other thing to notice is that, the stereo, is that the bars here in the stereopsis condition are much higher than the bars here in this condition. And so um, all patients and controls were responding normally to this stimulus alteration. That is to say, when you go from motion parallax, which is a less effective depth cue for getting the object structure, to stereopsis, which is more effective, then you get less illusion. You are more likely to see the object as concave. Did you yeah. do the uh, three-way interaction, including yes. the catch trial, or without the catch trial? Uh, so yes, yeah, so we did the catch trial uh, analysis separately from so, the yes. And so you don't see a three-way interaction. There is no interaction. Um, so if you collapse the data across the conditions, um, you can see that there is a significant difference between uh, controls and patients, with the patients uh, getting it uh, right more. More, uh, more often than the controls. Um, so then the next question we ask is, well, are these specific to schizophrenia? And specifically, um, can you find these same effects in bipolar disorder? And so maybe you're asking yourself, well, why do you just keep on focusing on bipolar disorder? And bipolar disorder is probably the best control group for schizophrenia. There are a bunch of reasons. Uh, one is that they take antipsychotics, and you can often match on antipsychotics. Two is they very often have poor premorbid functioning. They very have very often have a history of substance abuse. They very often have a history of psychosexual trauma. So you end up matching all these different variables as a result of using bipolar disorder. And also importantly, um, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia are genetically overlapping. So there's a paper in the Lancet in 2009 that showed that um, if you have a, a sibling with bipolar disorder, you're three and a half times more likely to have schizophrenia. If you have a sibling with schizophrenia, you're three and a half times more likely to have bipolar disorder. So they're both genetically related. Um, the groups uh, in this study were matched on the age, IQ, education, ethnicity, and handedness. Uh, and so here the data collapsed across condition. And I'm not going to show you all the data. I can if you want. But um, uh, there were no interactions with, uh, between uh, group membership and the condition. Uh, but there was just a uniform change in the convexity bias. So patients ended up um, different from the controls, as noted. And the bipolar patients were the same as controls, uh, but they differed from the schizophrenia patients. So in other words, to say it more briefly, bipolar patients perform just like controls. As before, no interactions. Uh, OK, so uh, do these depth inversion illusions, do they vary at the illness state? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, so we show we apply a proportion vertical response on the y-axis and the disorganization on the x-axis, and you can see that the more disorganized they are, paradoxically, the better or more accurate they are at saying that the object is concave. Same thing with positive symptoms. The more positive symptoms they had, the more likely that they would give a uh, concave response. So why do these uh, depth inversion illusions uh, depend on psychiatric diagnosis and illness state? 
Well, um, one way to understand this illusion is that the visual system uh, needs to go from a two-dimensional kind of noisy retinal image to a three-dimensional rich structure or representation of the world. And so in order to make that leap, that inferential leap, a lot of assumptions need to be made by the visual system. So one of the assumptions that the visual system makes is that most objects in the world are, are uh, convex, right? Very, it's, you see convex objects much more often than you see concave ones. And so the visual system internalizes this statistical regularity, and it uses this assumption whenever it sees ambiguous or unusual objects. And so uh, depth inversion illusions occur when the prior, this assumption that the visual system makes, overrules incoming bottom-up information that comes from stereo or motion parallax. Uh, and so psychosis weakens the reliance that um, su uh, subjects have on this prior, but how does it do it? Well, we, we don't know, but there is a, a, a tantalizing uh, model that was uh, put forth by Dima and colleagues in 2009 in NeuroImage, and they used dynamic causal modeling and fMRI to show that when subjects, healthy subjects, were getting the illusion, they had a significant modulation between intracrital sulcus and lateral occipital complex. And so it's possible that um, this prior assumptions that your visual system makes is kind of modulating what's happening at the level of LOC, which in turn might determine the final person. <coughs> Importantly, this modulation was weaker in patients than it was in controls. So to summarize, reduced depth inversion illusions of specific to schizophrenia and that they don't also occur in the related disorder or bipolar disorder. They're linked to more positive and disorganized symptoms. Uh, just make sure that we're all clear. Positive symptoms include things like delusions, hallucinations, grandiosity, things like that. Um, these reduced depth inversion illusions cannot be explained by poor motivation or attention. They're doing just fine on the um, catch trials. They are doing, they respond, responding normally to alterations in the stimulus properties, such as texture and depth cues. Uh, and these reduced DIIs uh, arise from a lessened reliance on the convexity prior. So patients just across the board were less prone to the illusion, regardless of whether they were using one eye or two eyes, or seeing the object as being more salient with texture or less salient without texture. And so this uh, deficit may arise from a reduced top-down feedback from interparietal sulcus to LOC, uh, but of course that needs to be replicated. Uh, so if we have time, I was going to go through this fourth paradigm and see what time it is. Good? Good on time? So uh, I'm just going to talk briefly about self-reported visual disturbances. Um, and so we use an instrument called the Bond Scale for the assessment of basic symptoms. It's used quite commonly in Europe, but less so here in the United States. And so basically what it is is a long interview where you ask subjects whether they had any number of uh, abnormal experiences with their body, in terms of their motor ability, in terms of their thinking. But of course, we're focused on visual perceptual abnormalities, and there's 17 items on the bond scale that address that. So here's some examples, pseudo movement. We'll say, have you ever in your life experienced objects as vibrating or moving when in fact you knew they were not vibrating or moving? Double vision, I think that speaks for itself. We also asked them about, about distorted faces. Have you ever seen people as having faces that are different or strange from what you know them to be? Have you experienced yourself as having a face that's different from what you knew your face to be? And so uh, there are a total of 17 items. Uh, and we simply asked them about lifetime history uh, of these disturbances. And we summed them up for each subject to see it, how they uh, related to um, uh, various clinical features. Uh, we had 22 chronic uh, schizophrenia schizoaffective patients and 21 first episode psychosis patients, nine of whom had schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, and the remaining had psychotic disorder or not otherwise specified, or schizophreniform disorder, which are um, less, less serious in nature, uh, potentially. Um, and so here are the data. Um, these are still going to be uh, further processed, but um, the y-axis shows uh, the positive symptoms. Um, and the depressed symptoms uh, derived from the PANS. Um, and the x-axis shows the bond vision total. And you can see that uh, the more and more items they endorse on this bond scale, uh, the more likely they are to have positive and depressed symptoms. Same thing with hallucinations, delusions, and bizarre behavior. This was assessed with the SAPS, which is a similar instrument to the PANS. 
Uh, hallucinations probably isn't terribly surprising, but if we looked only at auditory hallucinations, we also get a strong correlation, which indicates that visual perceptual disturbances can tell us how likely a person is to hear voices. Uh, also correlated with age of onset, people who had an earlier age of onset uh, of the illness were more likely to report these visual disturbances. Also, um, their um, adaptability to school and their sociability before illness onset was worse if they endorsed more of these visual disturbances. Um, their overall functioning in childhood and early adolescence was lower if they were more likely to report these visual disturbances. And also, if you compare schizophrenia and schizoaffective group to the subjects with other psychotic disorders, the schizophrenia and schizoaffective group were more likely to, re to report visual perceptual disturbances. So the conclusion then is that visual perception um, is a form of biomarker. The search for biomarkers is an active and uh, important area of investigation in schizophrenia research and throughout the NIH, as we know. Certain biomarkers are obvious to consider, right? You can look at uh, genetic differences, uh, neuroanatomical differences, uh, neurotransmitter metabolites, you know, uh, and the blood serum. There are a bunch of different things that you might think about when trying to identify a biomarker. But so far, none of these predict the presence of schizophrenia at the stage of the illness or the state of the illness with a high degree of accuracy. So behavioral analyses from vision, along with their um, uh, accompanying neuroimaging tasks, hold promise in this regard and could actually tell us a lot about these aspects of the illness. So the take home message for this talk is don't forget about visual processing. Visual assessments are fast, they're easy to implement, they're non-invasive and they're cheap. Um, they can help tell us whether a person has schizophrenia as compared to some other related illness like bipolar disorder. They can tell us about the likely symptoms that a person has, specifically positive symptoms and disorganized symptoms. They can tell us about the likely stage of the illness, uh, whether a person is in their first episode or more chronic stages. And they can also spe uh, implicate specific brain circuits, such as V1, V2, lateral occipital complex, and perhaps certain regions of the frontal cortex. Uh, furthermore, these visual assessments don't usually require the patient to be good at divulging facts about his or her own subjective experience. They just make responses about what they see on a screen. So we're not suggesting that we can just throw away our clinical instruments and just start using visual assessments. But we're saying instead that these visual assessments can complement standard clinical interviews when the clinical presentation is murky. So these uh, data uh, were collected um, and I was working on two different grants, an F32, which has been finished for a while now, and a current K01 project where I'm using neuroimaging to understand the neural basis of some of these perceptual differences. And I just started that a year ago. So uh, hope to, hope to, hopefully I'll have more data on that uh, in the years ahead. So um, I'd like to acknowledge the following individuals uh, who helped collect the data and helped uh, help me interpret the data. They have PhDs next to their name. That means that they're, uh, they're professors. Um, and then the other people were research assistants who were also excellent um, in helping us get good data. And most importantly, I want to say thank you for your attention. So thanks for a very nice talk, very informative, uh, very systematic. Um, so of course you're focusing on visual processing and you indicated that they in fact had visual hallucinations versus schizophrenia. Well, they also have auditory hallucinations. Mm -hmm. And so, um, if you think that the visual processing would be a biomarker, that would suggest that it's, it's specific to visual processing as opposed to sensory processing. Can schizophrenia have problems in sensory processing and visual processing is simply the easiest way to look at it, because you yourself showed there's much more information on visual than auditory or haptic or whatever it might be. So is it really they have a visual processing problem or, or a sensory processing problem? Uh, my hunch is that it's sensory. Uh, I agree completely with what, with what you said. Um, I think auditory processing um, paradigms could probably give us comparably interesting insights. Uh, but because we know so much more about the visual system than any other system in the brain, that I think this is a good starting point. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
Um, I was just curious for your inclusion criteria for your first break um, group. Um, how long was it between they had their first episode and when they were enrolled in your study? Since you're delineating. Uh, in most cases, uh, one year. One year. Okay. And did you screen for like the presence of active psychosis at the time that they completed your paradigms? So uh, they all were uh, stabilized. Um, so what happened is they would go into our inpatient unit uh, you know, for like a couple weeks and then they would put, on, put them on meds and give them uh, behavioral therapy as well. And then um, you know, a number of months after that, we would test them. Uh, but they were all clinically stable, and so they weren't actively psychotic. They had some residual symptoms, but they weren't actively psychotic. Yep. In your studies, do you do clinical visual assessments? For example, you were talking about visual acuity. When you talk about visual acuity, are you talking about high contrast acuity, or do you also do low contrast acuity, and also do you assess eye movements, like conversions, divergence? So, um, we use a ATDRS, uh, a logarith logarithmic visual acuity chart um, with a viewing distance that's similar to the viewing distance we have for our experiments. Um, on top of that, uh, in some of our studies, we've also had contrast sensitivity tasks. Um, and in terms of eye movements, uh, I think that uh, there's really interesting work that's being done recently using machine learning methods showing that you can use the statistics of eye movements to differentiate patients from controls with a very high degree of accuracy uh, on several tasks, whether you're looking at a dot or you're doing previewing of pictures um, or you're following a moving dot that's moving in a circle like in a, in a figure eight. Um, so we haven't really gone into eye movements yet. But my guess is that they're going to be intertwined um, with these visual disturbances. Uh, now, it's going to be, uh, if they are intertwined, it's going to be hard to understand, you know, figure out what's causing what. Um, but there, there's a lot to understand there. So I for the second study. Uh, if a person has binocular dysfunction, if they have convergence insufficiency, they will have uh, results similar to the ones that you find. I'm sorry, one more time? If they have binocular dysfunction, if yeah. they have a convergence uh, stereopsis dysfunction, you mean? So the stereopsis is uh, abnormal. They might have poor performance on your test because they have this inability mm -hmm. to have the, the two eyes working together. Um, so there are different reasons that you can have poor stereo. One of them is strabismus. Uh, we do rule out strabismus. Uh, that's an inclusion-exclusion criterion. Um, the other, you cannot have strabismus and still have poor stereo. We uh, have a stereo test that all subjects perform before they start the task to ensure that their stereo perception is intact. Uh, moving forward, you said that you're working under uh, an MRI grant and you just got it about a year ago. What are you looking to find with that in relation to the visual surfaces? Um, well, it's more like uh, some people have argued that these deficits emanate from the earliest visual processing centers, like B1 and B2. Other people have argued that they're high level in nature. And so um, we're kind of pitting these two hypotheses against each other for these, um, these tasks. One is contour integration, one is visual shape completion. Another is surround suppression or the Ebbinghaus illusion task, which I didn't really go into, but which there's data showing that when um, that patients are less prone to this sort of illusion. So for those of you who are not familiar, if you see a circle that's surrounded by big circles, you see that circle is being smaller. That circle is surrounded by small circles, you see that circle is being larger. And so that's called surround suppression of size. And uh, patients with schizophrenia, especially if they're acutely psychotic, are actually less uh, prone to that illusion. So they're actually more accurate at saying what the true size of that target is. Um, so uh, there's, there's evidence that this is a low-level effect. Uh, so for that example, um, there's a neat paper in Nature Neuroscience a few years ago uh, showing that you can predict the degree to which they get the illusion by looking at the surface area of functionally defined V1. So if you have a larger surface area, you get the illusion less. And so maybe, so nobody's really looked at the surface area you want to compare them between patients and controls. Now, if it's state dependent, then you wouldn't expect it, that to be a good hypothesis. But um, it's something at least that we should look at. Um, and we're also doing functional connectivity analyses. And I'm still a newbie to fMRI, so I'm learning this stuff as I go. Yeah? In terms of um, applications of your work, I was wondering what is your hunch in terms of how you can also inform 
community integration or maybe day-to-day living of patients with schizophrenia going forward because the chronic phase is quite long and as you kind of tapped on it on one of the um, experiments they could end up being inpatient they could be in a kind of assisted living facility or they could be entirely institutionalized which each come with different kind of costs for them for those loved ones around them so I was wondering if there is any way that this kind of work could even inform how they, how they might kind of fare and what kind of different needs they might yeah. have. Is there any kind of predictive value that you would would love to know. I think it's a great question. I think the NIMH has a lot of interest in those sorts of studies. Um, so the idea is to have a battery of visual assessments and you give them to a person perhaps in their prodromal phase or maybe shortly after their first psychotic break and you see if you can predict how well they're going to respond to medication, how well they're going to function following that, that time. Um, and if you can make an accurate prediction, that, that would excite a lot of people. And so it's something we would, would be interested in looking at more. Yeah. That's actually, that, I, I wanted to, I'm going to jump in because yeah. I, I wanted to ask back to that. So your idea of a biomarker or your, your contention that you have this biomarker, you know, it should have application to the individual and you should be able to use some battery of tests to predict something about an individual and you've shown us a bunch of stuff and it's all cool you have correlations that are reliable uh, on a group level but what do you how do you see that working in practice like what would be the battery of tests well, do you say I know you can't answer the question yeah. but what do you think no, I think, um, I think there's some really promising tasks, not just on the ones I showed you, but other ones by other groups that uh, have produced very large effect sizes. Uh, and some of these have been replicated, um, large samples. Um, and so uh, ideally, if you can distinguish groups in the chronic stage, you know, the Cohen's D 1.0 or something even higher, then that to me says that we should try running that on prodromal subjects. and. Um, um, especially if the visual test can distinguish chronic schizophrenia patients from chronic bipolar patients or people with borderline personality disorder. Uh, I think those would be the most promising sorts of tasks to, to test on, on prodromal subjects. And as I said before, these, are, these tests are easy to implement and they're cheap. Uh, and so you can tack it onto an ongoing neuroimaging study to, um, to kind of differentiate the people who are going to have a good prognosis versus those who will not. And what would be your bet at the top? Um, uh, well, I really like this. Uh, there's a paper that I was just uh, mentioning in biological psychiatry with the eye movements. They distinguish schizophrenia patients from controls with 98% accuracy using a support vector machine method. Um, now, I always want to see those sorts of things replicated. It's almost too good to be true. Uh, but that would be really cool because you have so much data in the eye movements. You know, you have the pupil size, um, you know, obviously a two-dimensional space, uh, and eye velocities, and so forth. Um, that I think if you just pl- apply a machine learning method to that, you could probably get a ton of data about a person's psychological state. Because there's so many factors that go into eye movements as well. So I think that's really promising. Um, not, not to belittle my own research that I just showed you, but uh, contra integration is probably the one that's given us the largest effect sizes. Um, and it's, as I said, with the high spatial frequency variant, that was eight minutes of testing. So um, we're actually doing a follow up experiment on that where we're, um, so when you scale the stimulus down in size, there are a bunch of things that are changing. You're changing the spatial frequency, but you're also changing the uh, Gaussian envelope or the width of the Gabor, you're changing the density of the elements. So we're going to tease apart these things in factorial fashion to determine which aspect is causing most problems for patients. And that in turn can give us a better idea of the cell population that are responsible for, for, for the deficit. So if that can be further tuned to increase the effect size even more, then that would be also very promising. So, um Schizophrenia patients, if they're properly medicated and adhering to their medication, can actually function in society, right? And of course, sometimes they go off their medication and are not functioning very well. In the same subject, if you gave them these tests, would you find the difference when they're doing well on medication or when they're off medication? Could you predict severity? So I was anticipating that question. 
So every task performance was uncorrelated with uh, the amount of antipsychotics that they were on, and so we quantify antipsychotics by using um, something called chlorpromazine equivalents, which is you just take, I think there's like 23 or so types of antipsychotics, and you can, there's a conversion table where you can put into CPZ equivalents. Uh, you can correlate that with performance, and we did not find correlations with any of our tasks, which provides a modicum of uh, assurance that this is not important. Uh, also, we looked at and compared uh, patients who were on first generation versus second generation antipsychotics. We found the differences there on each task. Um, also, long-term effects are unlikely for visual completion since the um, first episode of chronic patients performed about the same, despite having very large differences in the amount of time they've been spending on these on these meds. Um, for the deaf inversion illusions, um, there was a significant difference in CPZ equivalence between the bipolar and the chronic patients, but that's because four of our bipolar patients were not on antipsychotics at all. If you remove those subjects from the analysis and you ran the same analysis, you end up with the same results. So even when you have groups matched on antipsychotics, uh, the bipolar patients still perform like controls and still differently from patients. So that provides some additional certainty, or at least um, confidence, that uh, antipsychotics are not playing an important role. So one follow-up question, yeah. and then maybe we can stop yeah. it. Yeah, sure. So then, if it's, um, if you were to test patients five years before diagnosis, you know, you mean we diagnose them, they have schizophrenia from here on, but before that, they probably had schizophrenia, right? If you were to test them five years before, would you expect to see the the, the problems in this in these kinds of visual processing and could that then predict who might get schizophrenia? Uh, my guess is that yes it would be um, and uh, you're absolutely right I mean by the, the first time that they visit a hospital uh, by that point in time uh, it's called duration of untreated psychosis or TUP uh, it's usually quite substantial on the order of years um, and so it's highly likely, in my opinion, that they're going to be having these symptoms. Um, so that's why there's a lot of excitement right now in testing prodromal populations. Um, you know, people in their early teens, um, before age 13, I think it's 1 in 40,000 people actually get diagnosed with schizophrenia. So if you start at that early of an age and follow them longitudinally, I think that would be really exciting. Uh, I know they have, there's a really neat data set that came, came out of uh, New Zealand, uh, uh, Dalden University. Dalvin study, um, Donadin, sorry, uh, uh, and uh, so th they've been showing, they looked at like uh, IQ, and they showed that there's a drop in IQ years before illness onset, official illness onset, so that shows at least cognitive functioning precedes the official diagnosis by a number of years, and so it wouldn't surprise me if it's also perceptual functioning that's changing years before diagnosis. Let me ask you, um, when you talk about the uh, deaf inversion illusion and the prior, the prior informing visual perception, I start thinking about visual object semantics, right, about meaning representations. And the example you gave us of conversation, um, clearly disorganized uh, linguistic communication can have abnormal linguistic semantics. So I would assume that linguistic semantic uh, evaluations have also shown Abnormalities that correspond with these visual abnormalities. That's a great that question. Um, like I don't know, priming. but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you though. Yeah. Like semantic priming, something like this. Yeah, like um, so. Semantic priming might be more kind of diffuse in people with disorganization because the links between one concept and another concept that's ordinarily strongly linked might be less strongly linked, but exactly. other links that are less strong and healthy people might be stronger in a person with this organization. Exactly. Yeah, uh, that's really interesting. I haven't thought about that. It's like a real possibility. Yep. Have you guys or your group explored um, just having a single group with uh, of, of patients with schizophrenia who have had no history of any kind of visual hallucinations to see if your tests are still sensitive in detecting them? Well, on average, about 75% or so of patients have had no history of a visual hallucination, so I'm assuming that that applies to ours. I haven't looked at it explicitly, but I'm assuming that most, 
but three quarters of our patients did not experience visual hallucinations. Because the reason why I bring that up is because uh, when I was housed in inpatient psychiatry, it was always this uh, interesting, um, you know, to, to make sure that because there's always like inpatient bed scarcity, so you want to make sure that the person is not feigning symptoms for secondary gains. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Um, so that's that's why I bring that up. And I noticed clinically when we were doing our, our intake assessments, like we always asked, you know, the three crucial questions that you asked to get you an inpatient bed, which is, you know, for suicidal ideation, no. But then it always went auditory hallucination because that's the most prominent and that seems the most logical one to feign. Um, you know, easiest one to feign, like, you know, responding to internal stimuli or things of this nature, whereas it's a little bit, I don't know, less obvious, I guess, in, in, in feigning visual hallucinations. Uh, like, I think people believe that it's more believable to feign auditory types of hallucinations. So uh, I was wondering if you guys have done any not, work at, like, different. that's not that. obvious, but, um, I mean, because by definition, hallucination is something that nobody else has access to. Mm -hmm. um, so that's not clear to me. Um, or I mean, like significantly more common. Well, it's definitely, so auditory hallucination, so it's understandable because I think it's uh, like two thirds or 70% of patients with schizophrenia have auditory hallucinations, but there's some who don't have any auditory hallucinations. Um, so I think that it, it makes sense to emphasize auditory hallucinations. But I also think it's a bad idea to ignore visual hallucinations. Uh, they are 30, 25 to 30% is a large number. You shouldn't just ignore it because it's 25, 30% of the population. Oh, yeah. sorry, I meant as far as like feigning symptoms go. Like, yeah, more common to like uh, feign auditory symptoms. Than yeah, I, I, symptoms. I don't know. Um, to me, I think you can fake either one, but, uh, but I don't know, maybe, maybe there's a literature that speaks to that. I don't know. Yeah. I was just curious if, it, if your measures were sensitive to that because I know that's like an extreme economic burden and it obviously takes away necessary care from people who do need it when people are you know, misrepresenting their mental health symptomatology in order to acquire secondary gains. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I do agree that there's, I mean, in, in forensic psychology, there's a real problem of people pretending to have a mental illness so that they can have a lesser sentence or so they don't have any sentence, um, or so that they can get out of duties within jail, lingering and such. Um, so ideally, it'd be good to have either a battery of tests that are, um, the purpose of which are opaque to the participant, uh, or to have passive viewing and to have either look at eye movements or brain response, uh, which might even be better. Um, but something like that's needed in order to distinguish people who are genuinely psychotic um, from people who are not. I know with the, um, the James Holmes case, they uh, actually were going to administer him um, sodium tetothal mm -hmm. as a truth serum to try to get more information out of him to figure out whether he was pretending to be mentally ill. So he actually had a neuroscience background. He was a very smart guy, graduated in the top 1% of his class at UC Riverside. Um, and so he would be the type of person who could say, okay, well, let me look at the DSM, let me look it up on Wikipedia. Yeah. I'm gonna pretend to have this diagnosis to get a lesser sentence. Yeah. So yeah, you would want a battery of tests like either A or not, again, the, the purpose of which are opaque, yeah. or B, passive viewing, you'll get written response or eye movements. I think we're gonna take the rest of the questions yeah. offline and uh, thank you very much, Dr. Yeah. Keene, for, for a wonderful presentation. Yeah. To learn more about our scientists and the research of Kessler Foundation, go to www.kesslerfoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org.